afternoon, Tri-States. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped, brought to you in part by DuPaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. This is Ken down here in Missouri, but reading from the Friday, January 26th, 2024 edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And now we have our first piece from Above the Fold. Ousted NICC President Sues Trustees. The recently ousted president of Northeast Iowa Community College is suing the institution's board of trustees and claims its members acted illegally by taking action in a closed session meeting last year. Herbert Riedel filed the lawsuit against the NICC Board of Trustees in Iowa District Court for Winnesheek County in December, and the board secretary was served with the lawsuit last week, according to court records. The suit alleges that the board violated Iowa's Open Meetings Act by implementing a performance action plan for Riedel during a closed session on June 19th. Riedel was placed on paid administrative leave by the board in October, and his contract was terminated in November. Riedel has filed complaints against the college and board members with the Iowa Department of Education, Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board, and Higher Learning Commission, though the commission recently deemed that his complaint lacked merit and would not be investigated further. In those complaints and in various statements, Riedel has criticized individual NICC board members, current and former school administrators, and the NICC Foundation while asserting his innocence and his intention to contest his firing. The lawsuit requests that the court void the court's implementation of the Performance Action Plan, assess damages to each board member who participated in the vote, and award Riedel his attorney's fees and costs for the suit. This lawsuit is to hold the board accountable, Riedel said in an interview with the Telegraph Herald on Thursday. They have known that I objected to the way the evaluation was conducted and the imposition of a performance action plan, which was totally not justified, and the citizens deserve to have a board that follows the law. In an emailed statement sent to the TH on Thursday, NICC officials wrote that the college will continue to defend itself against Riedel's allegations. NICC's focus remains on its commitment to its mission and student experience, and it does not publicly comment on personnel matters, the statement reads. NICC intends to vigorously defend itself against the petition recently filed by Dr. Herbert Riedel and will not comment further on pending litigation. The lawsuit states that during the closed session at the board's June 19 meeting, Riedel believes the board discussed his salary, his contract, and the implementation of a performance action plan. 
The board then went back into open session and, according to both the lawsuit and board meeting minutes, voted to leave Riedel's salary and contract dates as they were and revisit them in six months. However, no action was taken in open session to vote on the implementation of the performance action plan, which the lawsuit states violates Iowa Code. The performance action plan was included in Riedel's complaint to the Iowa Department of Education, obtained earlier this month by the TH. It required Riedel to first share messages intended for the student body or all faculty and staff with members of the school's leadership team before sending them and obtain advice from the team before making decisions, among other requirements. Riedel signed the performance action plan and agreed to meet the expectations included in it, though he added in his signature that he did not agree with the way the plan characterized his leadership. The illegally imposed performance action plan resulted from a deeply flawed evaluation process that was manipulated and designed to distort my actual performance, which was highly successful based on objective measures. Riedel wrote in a statement regarding the lawsuit Thursday. In the statement, Riedel called the board's actions politically motivated and ego-driven, based in part on the fact that the first draft of the plan included a requirement that he participate in re-education on diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, measures. When I arrived at NICC, the DEI committee had plans to institute training on gender pronouns and to survey students on private sexuality, gender, and race issues, Riedel wrote in his statement Thursday. I directed the committee to follow Iowa's laws, refrain from controversy, include an openness to viewpoint diversity, and foster a workplace and learning environment that is respectful of employees and students while promoting diversity and inclusiveness. Under a 2021 Iowa law, Mandatory training for staff and students at a public post-secondary educational institution must not teach, advocate, act upon, or promote divisive concepts, including the idea that an individual is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive by virtue of that person's race and other concepts related to race or sex stereotyping. In his complaint to the Iowa Department of Education, Riedel wrote that such divisive concepts were being promoted during a mandatory onboarding training program for all NICC employees, which he discontinued after becoming president. While the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion was removed from the performance action plan before it was approved, Riedel said it points to the mindset of the board and administrators who would later call for his termination as NICC's president. A lot of people at the college are really troubled by the way this was done and are questioning the actions of the board, which acted in a rash and unwise manner that's put a lot of burden on everybody at the college, he said. NICC Board of Trustee Chair Jim Anderson did not respond to a request for comment Thursday. 
Reno repeatedly has stated his intention to contest his termination at an administrative hearing. On Thursday, he said he hopes the hearing will leave him vindicated and able to return to his role with NICC. I remain ready, willing, and able to serve, he said. Now our second front page piece. Local agencies complete count of homeless population. In the early hours of Thursday morning, a team of people from various area agencies trudged through the snow and ice in Dubuque, searching for people experiencing homelessness. Carrying resources such as sleeping bags, hats and gloves, hand warmers, participants aimed to find homeless people living outdoors in Dubuque and Delaware counties as part of a semi-annual count. The point-in-time count is a national effort that happens twice per year with one mandatory count in the winter and an optional one in the summer. A team goes out to speak with as many unsheltered people as possible to gather demographic information and an accurate count of how many such people are in the area. The effort is led locally by Community Solutions of Eastern Iowa, with representatives from other area social service organizations assisting. While gathering the necessary information, members of the count team also provide gear and resources to anyone who needs them. The team gathered late Wednesday and scoured Delaware County starting at about midnight, ultimately finding no one unsheltered there before meeting and creating a larger group in Dubuque at 3 a.m. Thursday. Split into smaller groups, the team checked several outdoor locations where people experiencing homelessness are known to stay, including downtown, under overpasses, and in wooded areas. Shelley Iperly, Homeless Program Coordinator for CSEI, said the team found at most a handful of people this year, probably because of recent weather that has brought large amounts of snow, followed by an increase in temperatures that makes outdoor conditions more wet and challenging to live in. While official numbers are not yet available, less than five people likely were counted, Iperly said. Homelessness presents so differently in a winter climate anyway, but when it's first very unseasonably cold and then you have this warm snap, survivability becomes really difficult when you can't stay dry, Iperly said. Last year, 16 people experiencing homelessness were recorded during the winter point-in-time count, which was a jump from 3 in 2021 and 7 in 2022. Will Pearsall, a resident manager at Dubuque Rescue Mission, said there likely would be more people living on the streets if it weren't for the mission's warming center at 1598 Jackson Street, which opened in the spring of 2023. On the same day of the winter count, homeless shelters also report the number of clients staying in their facilities. Mission Administrator Jeff Lenhart said Thursday that 43 men stayed at the mission's Main Street location and 15 stayed at the Jackson Street location overnight. Lenhart said he's certain more people would be living outdoors if it weren't for the mission's facilities. 
Dubuque also is home to Teresa Shelter, the emergency overnight shelter for women and children operated by local nonprofit Opening Doors. Ashley Ehrlich, Program Director at Opening Doors, said 19 individuals stayed overnight at the Teresa Shelter into Thursday morning. She said that left eight open beds. She said that number of openings is unusually high for the shelter, but potentially could be attributed to fewer evictions or utility shutoffs happening during the winter. Multiple people joined the point-in-time count team for the first time this year. Sam Wooden, a member of CSEI's board, said he knew he wanted to be involved when he heard about the count. While driving with a group to known homeless camp locations, Wooden said he was surprised by the number of locations where people experiencing homelessness might live that are outside the downtown area. This is a very inconvenient spot to stay if you're homeless because there's nothing around, Wooden said, of one investigation location. Pearsall also participated in the count for the first time. Because of his work at the mission, he wasn't surprised by anything, but said it was good to see and fully understand where people are staying. He said the experience highlighted that many people still need help. Miles Turner of Dubuque said he volunteered to participate in the count after hearing about CSEI's work and was curious to see what the experience was like. I just wanted to help out in any way that I could, Turner said. Our final front page piece, Simmons celebrates expansion. And with it, we have a large center picture of a number of people. Their backs turned to us in looking at the picture, but looking deeply into a warehouse, which appears to be stacked with dog food or pet food. And beneath it is the caption, a ribbon-cutting ceremony is held for an approximately 250,000-square-foot warehouse along Seipel Road on Thursday in Dubuque. The $24.5 million facility built by Seipel Warehouse LLC is leased by Simmons Pet Food. And our article reads, As he stood inside a sprawling warehouse along Seipel Road in Dubuque on Thursday, surrounded by towering stacks of packaged pet food, Simmons Pet Food Senior Vice President of Supply Chain Rob Lyle compared the building to a new car. You get inside, and you're like, wow, this is awesome, Lyle said. But with this building, as great as it is, and we should be very proud of it, what's really going to carry it forward is the people who work here. A crowd of about 75 people gathered Thursday for a ribbon-cutting ceremony for the approximately 250,000-square-foot warehouse, a $24.5 million project for which construction began in the spring of 2023. The facility was completed by Seipel Warehouse LLC, an entity made up of development company Gronin and other local businesses, and is being leased to Simmons Pet Food. The pet food manufacturer started production in Dubuque in summer 2021 at a nearby 275,000-square-foot manufacturing facility at 
501 Seipel Road and introduced a second pet food line in 2022. When we came here to Dubuque and originally put together the deal for the plan, we agreed that, hey, within seven years, we'll do a further expansion, Simmons President Scott Salmon said during the ribbon-cutting ceremony. The fact that we're doing it in three, I think, says that we're doubling down our partnership. We're doubling down on our commitment. As part of the development agreement for the project approved by Dubuque City Council members last spring, Seipel Warehouse LLC purchased 15.5 acres along Seipel Road from the city for about $1.5 million for the warehouse. About 744500 was reimbursed back to Seipel Warehouse LLC through a city acquisition grant. The developers also received 10 years of tax increment financing rebates for the project estimated to amount to $4.3 million. On Thursday, Dubuque Mayor Brad Kavanaugh thanked Simmons for its commitment to the city and praised his fellow civic leaders and local economic officials for their support of the company's expansion. In Dubuque, we always have this ability to move forward and get these things done and have great companies like Simmons come to town and not only bring great jobs, but expand, showing the way for other companies that are going to do the same, he said. It always gives me hope when we stand here in places like this that this is not the last time we're going to be doing this. Gronin construction manager Matt Anderson said Gronin led the planning and construction process for the project. Design work began in late January 2023, and the company's goal was to complete construction by December 31st, the proposed Simmons move-in date. We started with the end date and worked backwards, Anderson said. After reviewing this with our team, we determined it would take about 13 months to complete the project if we would do it in the standard way. To condense that timeline, Anderson said Gronin officials pre-ordered construction materials with long lead times and began early construction while design for the project was still ongoing. These two things helped shave about three months off the construction schedule, he said. According to Anderson, construction began April 10th and wrapped up November 29th, with Simmons moving into the facility December 1. Several times over the past few months, I have stopped by this facility to marvel at the fast-moving progress, said Jason White, Vice President of Business Services for Greater Dubuque Development Corporation. The development agreement with the city requires Simmons to create the equivalent of 10 full-time jobs by December 1, 2024, on top of the equivalent of 271 such jobs the company agreed to create in a development agreement with the city in 2020. If this does not take place, Seipel Warehouse will be required to pay back a prorated amount of the acquisition grant. Simmons has 262 Dubuque employees, according to Greater Dubuque Development's website. 
Lyle said Simmons had previously operated several satellite warehouses in the Dubuque area, and the opening of the Seipel Road warehouse allowed the company to move employees from those facilities to the new warehouse. What this building enables is continued growth in our production facility, and it drives the efficiencies for us to service our customers better at a lower cost, Lyle said. That's what this building represents for Simmons. Now we'll turn to some of our news from the Dubuque and the Tri-State area. At the top of the fold on page two, Galena gains $2.7 million in funding to replace lead services lines. The city of Galena has received some substantial state funding toward its ongoing efforts to replace lead, oh, excuse me, lead service lines. The Illinois Environment Protection Agency on Thursday announced nearly $2.76 million in funding to the city for the agency's state revolving fund, which provides funds for drinking water-related projects. The funds will be used to support ongoing efforts to replace lead service lines throughout Galena. We're very fortunate to have received the funding, said Galena City Administrator Mark Moran. It's obviously a large project, and we have a lot of work to do. Crews began replacement efforts last year on the city's east side, Moran said. Work has been delayed recently by weather, but will continue into the spring and summer months. The goal is to have all lead service lines replaced in two to three years, depending on funding. The EPA funding should cover the replacement of roughly half the city's lead service lines, estimated city engineer Matt Oldenburg, although additional funds likely will be required to finish the project. In that instance, the city will apply for another round of funding from the state EPA or another agency for additional financial support. In total, Oldenburg estimates there are between 300 and 400 lead service lines throughout the city. If we continue to get forgivable loans, we could keep going at our current rate. But if something we need to cover ourselves moves forward, moving forward, we would need to reduce the scope of the project in future years, Oldenburg said. Service lines are small pipes that carry drinking water into homes and other buildings. Many older structures nationwide were built with lead service lines or lead-containing plumbing fixtures that put occupants at risk of lead exposure. Replacing lead lines with copper or PVC minimizes that exposure and eliminates related health risks including coronary heart disease, neurological damage, and more. The recently secured funding is related to statewide public health efforts following the passage of the Water Infrastructure Fund Transfer Act, which has allotted $122 million towards similar replacement projects across Illinois since 2017. As work continues to replace the lines locally, Moran advised residents to use extra patience and caution in work zones. Like with any big project, there's going to be some disruptions, but the benefit to those property owners is substantial, he said. We'll all be able to sleep a little better knowing there's no longer any lead service lines in the city. We'll turn a bit now to our opinion page where we have four letters to the editor. Here is the first. 
We the people, integral to representative governance. Steve Grutzmacher, West 11th Street, Dubuque. When I hear politicians refer to themselves as our country's leaders, I cringe. Politicians have decided that governing structure of the United States assigns them more power than originally intended. We don't have a monarchy nor dictatorship form of government. Our well-tested form of democracy is known as a republic, designed to allow residents of each state to tell their officially elected state representative what they think is important enough at that time for action. Each representative collaborates with other state representatives to decide what needs doing. These actions are organized into bills that are sent to the Senate where state elected senators debate each bill's content and eventually organize them into suggested law. Finished bills get sent to the executive branch, the president, for final approval or veto. A veto sends it back down to the Senate for reconsideration. The whole process starts with the people who originate the concepts for action. The people vote their government officials into service. Neither House representative, senator, nor president originate the concepts for action. The people do. The president is in charge of federal governance over the total country's well-being in general, meaning military, energy, national emergencies, etc., Neither the House, Senate, or President has authority to decide what laws will or won't take place within individual states. A state holds jurisdictional precedence over its residents and the state's combined elect federal government officials. We the people decide what we want, not elected or, for that matter, non-elected bureaucrats like the IRS, CDC, or FBI. Next piece, or letter. More explanation of brain health issues needed. Mike McLean, McCormick Street, Dubuque. Brain health. What is it? After reading the article about brain health in the January 18 Telegraph Herald, I have to ask myself and others, what is it? The article is about our school systems trying to measure, quantify, and fix it. I suppose it's in the interest of helping students, but will it? I've never seen a good description of what brain health is. I wonder what is the empirical data to measure it, and what is the baseline to measure against? Until those are defined, measuring students seems pointless. I recall the article from the December 10th, 2023 issue of the TH, written by Pam Cress Dunn, where she suggests we use the long-standing term mental health instead. I agree with her, and she makes good sense. Coming up with another label for our school children adds more confusion and provides something new to blame. I believe many of the issues in our schools are behavioral, and the solution starts at home, not at school. Next letter. Reasonably priced medicine, key to affordable health care. Francis Ginta, Matthew St. John Drive, Dubuque. Whether we are urban or rural, rural, wealthy or not, every single Iowan deserves affordable health care. As part of affordable health care, we expect reasonably priced prescriptions. 
No Iowa family should have to choose between groceries or medication. Iowa seniors shouldn't have to ration doses so they can keep their homes warm in the winter. Pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, the middlemen who thrive when prices soar, need to be addressed. Consider this of the exorbitant $608 list price charged by Mylan for a two-pack of EpiPens, a staggering $334 funneled directly into the pockets of PBMs, not toward the improvement of healthcare accessibility. This isn't right. PBMs shouldn't make exorbitant profits by inflating prescription prices and secret rebates. PBMs should provide value to the prescription drug process with reasonable profit. It's time we come together and call on Congress for sweeping PBM reforms, like H.R. Bill 5378, the Lower Costs, More Transparency Act. We must hold PBMs accountable for their role in inflating prices. As advocates for affordable health care, we must raise our voices and demand our lawmakers listen. Educate yourself on these health care issues. Talk to others about this issue. Reach out to legislators and demand comprehensive reforms to lower prescription prices. When we come together, we can build a health care system that prioritizes accessibility over excessive profit. Our final letter? AEA's Vital to Iowa Education System, Susan Betcher, Spring Valley Road, Dubuque. It is so important to the education of our children to prevent dismantling the AEA. It supports immeasurable services across the entire range of education, including professional development for all teachers and administrators, statewide mental health crisis trauma support schools, and designing support systems alongside schools for literacy, math, and social-emotional support for all students, just to name a few. Our governor's plan to contract the services out to separate agencies would not work. This body looks at how children are improving and how they can make changes to assure that they are supported in a better way each year. There is no replacing the existing AEA. I have watched my son grow and immerse himself to create a positive impact within Iowa's school system, serving as a teacher, school principal, administrator, and currently as regional administrator with AEA for the past 24 years. He has shared his knowledge base to create a systematic impact or systemic impact and support across 25 schools and has never felt more positive about his influence over the past three years in his new AEA role. It would be a huge disservice to the children of Iowa to remove these educators with years of experience and knowledge from the Iowa education community. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. This is Ken, and I am reading from the Friday, January 26th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph 
Herald. We now turn to today's obituaries. Joseph L. Castor, Janesville. Joseph L. Castor of Janesville passed away peacefully on Friday, January 19th, surrounded by family members. Joseph was born in Portage, Wisconsin, and raised in Cuba City. He was the oldest of four children, born to Dr. Martin and Elizabeth Judkins Castor. He graduated from Cuba City High School in 1957. He went on to UW-Platteville and earned a B.S. degree in English and Business Administration in 1962. He received an MST degree in 1979 from UW-Whitewater. In 1962, Joseph started a long and successful career in education and coaching. He started at Waterford High School. He was hired at Bigfoot High School in Walworth in 1966. From 1967 to 65, he was an English teacher at Janesville Craig High School. In addition to teaching, Joseph coached football, track and field, softball, and wrestling. He earned many expansive accolades for his contributions to the sport of wrestling. These included being inducted into the Wisconsin Wrestling Coaches Hall of Fame in 1995, the National Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2003, and the Janesville Sports Hall of Fame in 1996. He not only coached, but was a referee at the high school and collegiate level. In addition, he was a member of the wrestling media. He was an owner and editor of the Wisconsin wrestling newspaper, The Crossface, and held an esteemed press pass for photography at the Olympic Games in Seoul, South Korea. Joseph married his high school sweetheart, Patricia Mueller, from Dickeyville in 1960. They received recently celebrated their 63rd wedding anniversary. Together, they had five children and were blessed with 13 grandchildren and 11 great-grandchildren, with another one on the way. He was loved and adored by all his family members. Joseph was preceded in death by many, including his parents. Besides spending time with family, Joseph had a passion for his motorcycle, his Catholic church, his dog, reading, the St. Louis Cardinals, the Chicago Bears, and road trips to local establishments with family and friends, or solo trips to places like Bourbon Trail. He had an expansive vocabulary, but boredom was not one of those words. There will be a celebration of life in Joseph's honor at a later date. Memorials are encouraged to the Humane Society of South Southern Wisconsin. Please visit www.petsgohome.org to donate. Schneider Funeral Home and Crematory is assisting his family. For online condolences and guest book, please visit www.schneiderfuneraldirectors.com. Keith L. Roth. Keith L. Roth, 92, of Dubuque, formerly of East Dubuque, passed away Sunday, January 21st, at home. Massive Christian burial will be 11 a.m. Monday, January 29th, at St. Mary's Church in East Dubuque, with Father Dennis Vargas officiating. Burial will be in the East Dubuque Cemetery. Military honors will be accorded by members of the Dubuque Marine Corps League. Family and friends may call from 9.45 to 10.45 on Monday at the church. 
the Miller Funeral Home of East Dubuque is assisting the family. Keith was born in East Dubuque on June 2, 1931, the son of Albert P. and Lila Ashby Roth. He was a graduate of East Dubuque High School, the class of 1950, and played on the football team. Keith was united in marriage to Rita Ray Prohakis, August 22, 1955, at St. Mary's Church. She preceded him in death on December 28, 1998. He was employed at the John Deere Dubuque Works until his retirement in May 1986. Keith was a veteran of the U.S. Air Force, serving in the military police during the Korean conflict. He played on the Air Force football team at Hill AFB in Ogden, Utah. Keith enjoyed gardening, playing cards, especially Euchre Bridge, and was former president and member of the East Dubuque Board of Education. Keith's family would like to thank the nurses and staff at Hospice of Dubuque, and online condolences may be left for the family at www.millerfhed.com. Robert Curler. Robert Bob Curler, 86, of Dubuque, died Tuesday, January 23rd at the Hawkeye Care Center in Dubuque. Visitation will be from 2 p.m. until 4 p.m. Saturday, January 27th at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory. Bob was born December 16, 1937, in Dubuque, the son of Frederick and Viola Donath Curler. On August 10, 1963, he married Judy Buell at Church of the Nativity in Dubuque. Bob graduated from Dubuque Senior High School. He retired from the Dubuque Packing Company after 41 years and then worked for the Dubuque Community School District for 11 years as a bus driver. In his younger years, Bob enjoyed playing fast-pitch softball, but he really loved all sports. He enjoyed golfing, bowling, baseball, and he was very good at basketball. Bob also spent time umping for baseball games. He was an avid Indianapolis Colts fan, Iowa Hawkeye fan, and Cleveland baseball fan. Bob and the family enjoyed spending time boating on the Mississippi River and fishing. Above all, he was just happy when he could spend time with his family and friends. In lieu of flowers, Memorials may be made to the Robert Bob Curler Memorial Fund. A photo tribute can be viewed and condolences sent to the family by visiting Robert's obituary at www.hskfncares.com. Adele H. Hedrick, DeWitt, Iowa. Adele Hedrick, 87, of DeWitt, passed away peacefully Tuesday, January 23rd at Fieldstone of DeWitt with family at her side. Visitation will be Saturday, February 3rd from 9 a.m. until 11 a.m. at St. Joseph Catholic Church in DeWitt. A funeral mass will be held at 11 a.m. in the church, the Reverend Father Stephen Page officiating. Burial following in the Dubuque Cemetery. Adele Helen Tice was born February 19, 1936, in Dubuque, to Clarence and Callista Palm Tice. She graduated from Dubuque Senior High School in 1954. 
Adele married Glenn W. Hedrick on November 30th, 1957, and they settled in DeWitt in 1966. She worked in the senior high school in Dubuque, Adams Company, Dubuque Stamp Company, Stanley Home, and the DeWitt Fitness Center. Adele was a member of St. Joseph Catholic Church in DeWitt, where she served on the Altar and Rosary Society. She also volunteered for the hospital auxiliary, delivering meals on wheels. Adele enjoyed bowling, quilting, playing cards, and time with her family. Condolences may be expressed at www.schultzfuneralhomes.com. John F. Ertl, Guttenberg. John F. Ertl, 84, of Guttenberg, died Wednesday, January 24th. Visitation will be held from 8.30 to 10.45 a.m. Monday, January 29th at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Guttenberg, where services will follow at 11 a.m. Burial will follow in the church cemetery. Morris Funeral Home of Guttenberg is assisting the family. Jean M. Ryder, Cascade. Jean M. Ryder, 93, of Cascade, died Wednesday, January 24th. Visitation will be held from 9 to 11 a.m. Friday, February 2nd at St. Martin's Catholic Church in Cascade, where services will follow. Burial will take place in Calvary Cemetery in Cascade. Rife Funeral Home of Cascade is assisting the family. Ronald A. Spillane, East Dubuque. Ronald A. Spillane, 82, of East Dubuque, died Wednesday, January 24th. Services will be held at 11.30 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd at St. Michael's Catholic Church in Galena. Furlong Funeral Chapel of Galena is assisting the family. Carmen C. Blosh, Darlington. Carmen C. Blosh, 91, of Darlington, died on Thursday, January 24th. Arrangements are pending. Howden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Cuba City is assisting the family. Marjorie A. Havertape, Hazel Green. Marjorie A. Havertape, 84, of Hazel Green, died Wednesday, January 24th. Arrangements are pending. Miller Funeral Home of East Dubuque is assisting the family. With all of the passings, we do have some arrivals, and here they are the births. Just one, actually. Thursday, January 25th, Demmer. Jared and Kayla Demmer of Farley, a boy at Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center. Welcome, little one, to our world. And now we have one more Dubuque Tri-State piece. Experts share warnings, climate change adaptations in beef production during conference in Dubuque. More than 150 farmers and other stakeholders in upper Midwest beef production gathered Thursday in Dubuque, where expert presenters shared impacts to cattle from climate change and tools to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Many environmentalists cast cattle and their farmers as contributing too much climate change because of the high rate of methane emitted by cows due to their digestion. 
the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency under the Biden administration has pursued a 30% reduction from 2020 methane levels by 2030, which has led to more scrutiny on animal agriculture. The way we reduce methane from oil wells is fix the leak, said Speaker Kim Stackhouse-Lawson, director of AgNext at Colorado State University. Cows are never going to stop belching methane. The pressure is excruciating right now on that particular sector. And at the same time, they are being labeled a contributor to climate change. Cattle farmers and beef producers are suffering its impact via hate stress, forage quality degradation, and increased disease, according to Illinois State climatologist Trent Ford. Ford said heat stress is increasing in both humans and cattle, mostly because nights have grown increasingly warm. If at night when we can re- it's at night when we can recover from the heat of the day, he said. Across the Midwest, we're seeing fewer of those summer nights when it gets below 60 degrees. We see a consistency among models predicting a continuation of that trend. So farmers will need to focus on giving cattle heat relief at night, which means more than hosing them down. Ford also said that an increasing humidity in the Midwest will create better conditions for livestock diseases, especially those borne by mosquitoes and other insects. The Lone Star Tick can spread alpha-gal, which causes an allergy to red meat in humans, he said. But Ford said that climate change would likely increase demand for beef production in the Midwest due to water shortages in western cattle-producing states and to younger generations' demand for locally sourced meat. And Ford said that cattle grazing as a component of conservation farming practices on the rise in the driftless region creates biodiversity, which also benefits cows and banks carbon. Stackhouse Lawson shared her work seeking ways to reduce the methane being emitted by cows without sacrificing cows' body growth through diet, genetics, grazing, and confinement strategies at different stages of cows' life. She said her team at CSU has also seen promise in using hormone implants to reduce the amount of food needed to achieve target cattle growth. Cattle farmer David James, who attended the event, said the conversations Thursday need to happen more. It's certainly an industry, as an industry, something we're getting a lot of pressure on, he said, of sustainability and climate change. So they're the things we need to think about. Now we'll start looking at some of our news in brief. Police terminated employees' posts threatened massacre at company. Police said a terminated employee used social media to threaten a massacre at the offices of his former Dubuque employer. Scott J. Quested, 31, of Albia, Iowa, was arrested at 1.29 p.m. Wednesday on a warrant charging threat of terrorism. Threat of terrorism is a Class D felony in Iowa, punishable by up to five years in prison if convicted. Court documents state that officers responded at approximately 3.45 a.m. Monday to Hirschbach Motor Lines, 2460 Kerper Boulevard, for a report of harassment. A Hirschbach official had requested that police respond to the business to stand by while the night shift employees went out to their vehicles after a threat was posted on a Facebook page, documents state. 
Investigators learned that Quested had been terminated by Hirschbach on January 11th, documents state. Monday morning, Quested had posted two threats on a private Hirschbach group page on Facebook, documents state. The posts were made between 1 and 3 a.m. The first post read, Today is the day, the day that it all begins. The day of my massacre shall begin. I have become death, documents state. The second read, Today is the day, the day that it all begins, the day of my massacre, where blood will begin to splatter the walls. I have become death, documents state. The posts were made by an account listed as Joseph Quested. Photos of Joseph Quested on the Facebook page match Scott J. Quested's Iowa driver's license photo, according to documents. A Hirschbach official told police that Quested's posts created a lot of panic among the company's employees and that most of the office employees worked from home following the Facebook posts, documents state. Our next piece, West Delaware Board announces three finalists for superintendent from Manchester. Officials of a local school district have announced three finalists in a search for a new superintendent. The West Delaware County Community School Board will choose among Jay Marley, Jen Vance, and Jason Wester, according to a press release. The new superintendent will replace Kristen Rickey, who is retiring from the position at the end of this school year. This year marks Rickey's 13th with the district. Among the finalists, Marley currently serves as superintendent of Tripoli, Iowa Community School District. He previously served as middle school and high school principal, special education director, and athletic director at Tripoli. Vance is the current assistant superintendent in Central DeWitt, Iowa Community School District. She previously served as director of instruction and innovation at Central DeWitt. Wester is the current superintendent of Tipton, Iowa Community School District. He previously served as an elementary principal in Muscatine, Iowa Community School District. The release states that the school board and stakeholder interview teams will conduct final interviews with each of the three finalists on Monday, January 29th. The board then plans to discuss the candidates and reach a final decision soon after the formal interviews. The next superintendent begins the position July 1. Traffic signals again operational at intersection in Dubuque. Although traffic signals are once again operational at a Dubuque intersection, officials said pedestrian signals remain out. Traffic signals returned this week to the intersection of Asbury and Carter Roads, according to a press release. Wiring issues mean that the pedestrian signals at the intersections remain non-operational until further notice. Information sought on area crash, Dickeyville. Authorities seek information on a hit-and-run crash in Grant County. The incident occurred at approximately 10.05 a.m. Tuesday on U.S. 151, just south of Clay Hollow Road, according to the Grant County Sheriff's Department. A press release states that Nicholas Begee, 25, of Platteville, was traveling south on U.S. 151. McGee said a dark-colored vehicle crossed into his lane and crashed into the passenger side of his vehicle. 
McGee's vehicle entered the median and overturned. McGee was not injured. The offending vehicle continued south on U.S. 151 and was not located, the release states. Anyone with information about this crash is asked to contact the Sheriff's Department, 608-723-2157. Peeps O'Rama Crafting Event Set, Platteville. Platteville Public Library will host its annual Peeps O'Rama Crafting Event next month. The event will be held from 10.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. February 24th and from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. February 25th at Platteville Public Library, 225 West Main Street in Platteville. Participants of all ages create a diorama based on a book using the contents of the library's craft cupboards and dozens of marshmallow peeps. The event is intended for all ages. Children nine and younger must be accompanied by an adult. Dioramas will be displayed at the library after the event. Dyersville Used Book Sale Slated From Dyersville Friends of James Kennedy Public Library will host a four-day used book sale. The sale will be held today through Monday, January 29th in the basement of the library, 321st Avenue E in Dyersville, according to an online announcement. The hours of the sale are from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. today, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Saturday, 1 to 4 p.m. Sunday, and 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday. Bags of books will be available for $2 on Monday, the final day of the sale. I discovered one more Tri-State piece that will be of interest. Plans unveiled for three new city parks. City of Dubuque officials on Thursday unveiled conceptual designs and planned amenities for three new neighborhood parks soon to be installed around the city. The parks are planned for empty green spaces in Dubuque subdivisions and all are slated for summer 2024 construction, according to a press release. Residents can provide input on the park's designs, which were created using data from an initial survey that indicated people living in Dubuque wanted the parks to prioritize safety and accessibility in their designs. City staff members seek additional input on the park concepts. New surveys about the designs and details about each park are available at cityofdubuque.org slash plan your park. Conceptual plans state that the new Eagle Valley Park will utilize green space at the end of a cul-de-sac on Harpy Eagle Court. The new park's features are planned to include a playground, swing bench, picnic shelter, an open grassy area, and landscaping including various flowers, trees, and grasses. Eagle Valley Park will be accessible via a sidewalk in the 2000 block of Harpy Eagle Court, plans state. English Ridge Park will be situated along Stone Valley Drive at the entrance of its namesake neighborhood. The park's conceptual plan includes a 20-foot by 40-foot picnic shelter with tables, an Americans with Disabilities Act accessible sand play feature, and other typical park amenities such as benches and a bike rack. 
The third neighborhood park and playground is slated for the Westbrook Estates neighborhood off Siple Road. It will be located along Westbrook Drive at its intersection with Trails Edge Drive. Concepts call for the current empty lot there to be filled with a looping sidewalk, playground, upright play panels, swing bench, ADA accessible picnic bench, and space for a potential community garden. City officials said they made an effort to include a variety of shrubbery and trees to complete the park's aesthetics while also considering the needs of wildlife. During phase one of community engagement, tree canopy and swings were identified as important aspects of the park design, the release states. As a result, the conceptual plan includes a variety of trees and swing benches overlooking the natural area of the park. The team will work to incorporate bird and pollinator habitat and sensory plants during the next phase of planting and planting.